Israel and Hamas appear to be on the verge of a deal to release some hostages as fighting around a hospital in northern Gaza intensifies. It's Monday, November 18th. This is WBUR's Morning Edition. Good morning, I'm Rupa Shanoi. Coming up, the legacy of former First Lady Rosalind Carter, who died yesterday. She's remembered as someone who revolutionized the role of the president's spouse. Rosalind was somebody who wanted to be a true partner to her husband, and she didn't see any reason why she shouldn't be allowed to. Also this hour, how Russia and Ukraine are using cyberspace as the latest front in their war. Plus, why some FTX customers are still waiting for their money a year after the cryptocurrency exchanges collapse. And a conversation with Broadway and TV star Billy Porter. In sports, Celtics win in Memphis, sunny, near 40 to It's 7.01. Now the news. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Nora Rahm. Egyptian authorities say the first group of premature babies evacuated from a Gaza hospital have arrived in Egypt for treatment. The newborns had been removed after a collapse in medical services, partly caused by power cuts when fuel ran out. Hundreds of critically ill or wounded patients remain stranded at the hospital, which was stormed by Israeli forces. The Lebanese-based militia Hezbollah targeted an Israeli military site with heavy rockets this morning. NPR's Jane Araf has more from Amman Jordan. Hezbollah, the powerful Iran-backed militia in Lebanon, attacked an Israeli military command center in northern Israel early Monday with what it said were heavyweight Burkan rockets. It said the attack was a direct hit on the command center of an Israeli army division based in Baranit near the Lebanese border. The Israeli army said only that the attack caused fires at the scene and said there were no injuries. Israel said Monday's attack on the military base were in response to its own strikes on targets in Lebanon. Israel and Hezbollah have launched daily attacks across the border since the war in Gaza began in October. Jane Araf, NPR News, Amman, Jordan. Tributes are pouring in for former First Lady Rosalind Carter, who died yesterday at her home in Plains, Georgia, with former President Carter and their children by her side. She was 96. President Biden called them an incredible family, that Jimmy and Rosalind Carter brought so much grace to the White House. Imagine, we were together, what, 77 years? Anyway, I, I hope they were all satisfied. They were happy, the family that I talked that they were together. Jimmy Carter, now 99 years old, said she was his equal partner in everything he ever accomplished, that she gave him wise guidance and encouragement when he needed it. Philippines President Ferdinand Marcos Jr. is visiting Hawaii on his way back from the 2023 Asia-Pacific Economic Cooperation Summit in San Francisco. His father, Marcos Sr., was overthrown in 1986, and the family lived in exile in Honolulu until 1992. Jackie Young from Hawaii Public Radio has more. Governor Josh Green greeted Marcos when he arrived on Saturday, but about two dozen protesters gathered in Waikiki as Marcos attended a large dinner. The group held signs, erected an effigy of the leader, and vocalized their anger over megaphones over corruption and human rights abuses during the family's rule. Marcus met on Sunday with Admiral John Aquilino, the top U.S. commander in the Indo-Pacific, and other military officials. The president delivered a talk about the Philippines-U.S. alliance and his nation's security challenges. For NPR News, I'm Jackie Young in Honolulu. 
This is NPR News. I'm Rupa Shanoi. This is WBMR in Boston. The head of the T says the system is safe despite needing an estimated $24.5 billion in repairs. MBTA General Manager Phil Ang announced last week the system needs that much money to bring tracks, trains, signals, and other infrastructure up to date. The price tag does not include any expansion of the system. Ang told WCVBs on the record there is a plan in place to keep riders safe that includes slowing trains on faulty tracks until repairs are made. The speed restrictions ensure it's safe. The work that we're planning in 2024 and the end of this year is going to address all of those speed restrictions, as well as tackling state of good repair on top of that. The T will conduct a series of closures over the next year to get rid of slow zones on the subway. As of this morning, there are speed restrictions on 23 percent of the T. There will be a candlelight vigil later today to honor the security officer killed last week at a New Hampshire state psychiatric facility. Police say Bradley Haas was killed by a gunman on Friday outside of the hospital in Concord. That gunman was later killed by a state trooper. New Hampshire Governor Chris Sununu praised the swift response by Haas and others on the scene. Make no mistake, if not for the heroics and sacrifice of Bradley Haas, the bravery of the New Hampshire hospital staff, the unflinching response of New Hampshire State Police, um, this tragedy it could have been much, much worse. New Hampshire owes a debt of gratitude to them all. Authorities say they're investigating the motive for the shooting. The bacteria believed to be causing a respiratory illness in dogs in other parts of the country has been found in samples taken from animals in southeastern Massachusetts and northern Rhode Island. University of New Hampshire veterinary pathologist David Needle says some symptoms include coughing and eye or nose discharge. He says it's not fatal to healthy dogs, but it is a concern for dogs with a chronic disease. We haven't had an animal come and die of this sort of chronic dry coffee, like, you know, mucusy cough that's resistant to sort of empirical treatments. Needle advises dog owners who see symptoms to limit their pets' exposure to other dogs and make sure vaccinations are up to date. Newburyport officials will host a meeting today in a final effort to save a century-old landmark. It's a pink house on Plum Island. The land the vacant house sits on was bought by U.S. Fish and Wildlife eight years ago. The agency had planned to tear the home down, but that was put on pause following a public outcry. Officials with Fish and Wildlife say efforts to trade the property have failed numerous times. The agency tells the Boston Globe it'll take the house down if a solution isn't found by the end of the month. It's 7.07. WBUR supporters include the George Lucas Educational Foundation, creator of Edutopia, for 30 years committed to advancing educational innovations and research that improves pre-K to 12 learning. More at edutopia.org. The Celtics beat the Grizzlies 102-100 last night in Memphis. The Seas will visit the Charlotte Hornets tonight. Also tonight, the Bruins will visit the Tampa Bay Lightning. Sunny today with a high only near 40. Clear overnight with temperatures in the 20s. Increasing clouds tomorrow. It'll be in the lower 30s. Rain for Wednesday. It's 34 degrees in Boston. Thanks for listening to WBUR.
It's Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Steve Inskeep. And I'm Michelle Martin. Good morning. Israel and Hamas appear to be inching toward a possible deal for the release of some of the 240 hostages kidnapped by Hamas last month. To do that, there will also have to be a pause in the fighting. In an interview on NBC's Meet the Press, President Biden's Deputy National Security Advisor John Finer issued words of caution. Nothing is agreed until everything is agreed. The news, or the anticipation of news, comes as Israel presented video that it says shows a Hamas tunnel under Al-Shifa Hospital, a focal point for the war in the past several weeks. NPR's Lauren Freyer in Tel Aviv has been reporting on all of this, and she's with us now once again. Good morning, Lauren. Good morning, Michelle. Would you just start by telling us the latest at Al-Shifa, which is Gaza's biggest hospital? Michelle, you've probably seen the pictures that captivated the world. These 31 newborn babies struggling to survive after their incubators cut out for lack of electricity at El Shifa. Doctors there had huddled them together on a bed to keep them warm as the war raged outside. Well, they now have been evacuated. Palestinian ambulances drove them out last night, and they're expected to cross the border into Egypt today. Israel now controls that hospital. It's been evacuating people, and it allowed UN representatives in, and they described the interior as a death zone with signs of shelling, gunfire, and a mass grave. Israel, meanwhile, has released a bunch of videos it says prove that Hamas not only operated out of tunnels under the hospital, but that it brought at least three hostages into the hospital and, in fact, killed one of them there. They showed us hospital security camera footage and video recorded apparently by a robot that went into those tunnels. NPR hasn't been able to independently verify any of that footage, though. Let's turn to the hostages, which is a a subject that, that deeply concerns people from a number of nations. The Gulf country of Qatar is acting as a mediator. Its prime minister told reporters yesterday that only minor obstacles remain on a deal to release hostages. Is that what you're hearing? Yeah, I spoke with a former Mossad intelligence agent. His name is David Maidan. He negotiated Israel's last big hostage transfer involving Gilad Shalit. He was an Israeli soldier held by Hamas in Gaza for five years. He was released 12 years ago, and Maidan did the negotiations. He did it inside Egyptian intelligence headquarters in Cairo, and he described, you know, the Israelis in one room, Hamas down the hall, the Egyptians shuttling between them. He says this time is way harder. You have to send messages from Israel to Qatar, from the Qatar to the leaders of Hamas in Qatar, and the leaders of Qatar are passing the message to Gaza. You know, it takes time. You know, the Hamas decision makers, he says, are not in Qatar. They are literally underground in these Gaza tunnels. Another Israeli hostage negotiator told me his understanding is that they are literally passing notes on paper through these tunnels in Gaza up to intelligence officials at the Egyptian border, then out to Qatar, to the U.S., and then to Israel. Well, so negotiations on the one hand. On the other hand, we see that Israel, we hear that Israel is widening its bombardment of Gaza. What's the latest on that? Some of the fiercest fighting today seems to be around yet another hospital in the north of Gaza. Witnesses report airstrikes, shelling, Israeli tanks moving in. Israeli forces, meanwhile, have stepped up their attacks in the south of Gaza as well. And that is an area where Israel had encouraged civilians to flee toward. So Gaza's 2.3 million people are being squeezed into an ever smaller area that is suffering more Israeli strikes. That is NPR's Lauren Freyer in Tel Aviv. Lauren, thank you. Thanks, Michelle. When we spoke with Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu on this program last week, my colleague Steve Inskeep asked him whether Israelis are losing faith in his leadership. 
Well, I can say that Israel is united today as never before. And my government is united. I called in a significant part of the opposition that heeded my call. We formed a unity government. My whole cabinet is united. And we're committed to doing three things, destroying Hamas, returning our hostages, and uh, assuring a different future in Gaza. Well, as you can hear, he deflected the question. Shortly after the start of the war, the Knesset, Israel's parliament, approved a national unity government, which includes a broad coalition of Netanyahu's right-wing government and centrist opposition leaders. But voices to replace Netanyahu have grown within the opposition and also his own party. So we decided to put the same question we asked the prime minister to Yohanan Plesner. He's president of the Israel Democracy Institute. That's a nonpartisan think tank that aims to strengthen Israel's democratic foundations. He's with us from Jerusalem via Skype. Uh, welcome. Thank you so much for joining us. Hi, good morning, Michelle. Thanks for having me. So, so as this war between Israel and Hamas has entered its seventh week, what's your sense about how this conflict and Israel's response to it, uh, Israel's military response, how do you, what's your sense of how they are perceived in the Knesset and among the Israeli public at large? Well, the Israeli public is, uh, I mean, the prime minister in his answer to your, uh, in, in the in last week's interview was right that Israelis are united. Israelis are united not behind his leadership, but behind the IDF's effort to dismantle Hamas. There's about more than 90% uh, trust and support uh, for the IDF, and there's unanimous support for the overarching goal of both dismantling Hamas and bringing back the hostages. So Israelis are united about that. They're not united about the leadership of Mr. Netanyahu. Only about 22% of Israelis gave the prime minister a positive rating in his management of the war. So levels of trust in in Mr. Netanyahu as a political leader are at an all-time low. What, what about within his own party, the, the, the Likud party? Well, the, the the sort of the common wisdom and, and, and generally the vibe in Israel that we're we're right now in a in a war a war that has been forced on us by uh, Hamas that massacred so many Israelis and the uh, and the overarching goal is dismantling Hamas crushing its uh, its uh, uh, capabilities and ability to uh, to perpetrate such crimes in the future until that happens politics will not kick in. If you, but what we are seeing behind the scenes is obviously Mr. Netanyahu's popularity in the general public is at an all-time low. He lost about a half of his uh, political base, and clearly the, uh, the the sort of growing understanding is that once the war is over, uh, it would be very difficult, if not impossible, for Mr. Netanyahu to hold on to his position as prime minister. I, I was going to ask you about that because, I mean, obviously there's a desire for accountability for the security failures exploited by Hamas during the October 7th attack. And I also, you know, before the Hamas attacks, I think many people will remember that he was heavily criticized for changes in the judiciary to give him more political power. He's, he was facing a trial into allegations of corruption. There were massive demonstrations about that. So is it is it your sense that, that Mr. Netanyahu has any political future after this war ends? <laughs> well, there's a, a graveyard of commentators that predicted the end of Netanyahu's political long political career. Uh, but but yes, you're right. Netanyahu was elected just a year ago in November of last year, 
and, and, and the main project of his government until October 7th was the judicial overhaul that was largely unpopular within the Israeli public, not only in the broad public, but also among his own Likud supporters, about a third were opposed to it. So his, his government went into this uh, security crisis very unpopular, and now its popularity, and especially his uh, persona as uh, Mr. Security, Mr. Stability, has uh, has uh, fallen apart. And in this sense, we expect political changes after the war. But we are united in the need to end this war successfully and bring down uh, the Hamas as a governing entity of Gaza. But I take your point that predictions at this point would be foolhardy, given the, the history here. So thank you for that. that Yohanan Plesner, Yohanan Plesner is the president of the Israel Democracy Institute. We reached him in Jerusalem via Skype. Mr. Plesner, thank you so much. Thank you. Good morning. This next story takes us to the north of India, to the Himalayas, where 41 workers were digging a tunnel that collapsed. More than a week later, they're still trapped. NPR's Dia Hadid reports. Shifting focus now to some distressing news coming to the fore, and this is from Uttarkashi, where part of an under-construction tunnel has collapsed. Rescue teams have been rushed there so that far. That was eight days ago. And despite initial reports that the 41 men trapped inside could be freed quickly, they're still stuck. Footage shared by Indian media outlet ANI showed heavy machinery surrounding the tunnel. But multiple attempts to rescue the men have stalled, amid fears that more drilling in the wrong place could cause more of the tunnel to cave in on the men. So far, though, rescue workers are managing to send in food, water and even antidepressants to trap labourers through a small pipe. Multiple agencies are working on the rescue, alongside global experts like Arnold Dix, who was flown in by government helicopter. Dix is president of the International Tunneling and Underground Space Association. He spoke to local media. We're going to get those men out. What I've seen, there are great, great works being done. And we're going to find the solution and we're going to get them out. Dix followed up in a LinkedIn post Monday saying that multiple, complicated rescue efforts were underway, including workers building an emergency mini-tunnel. It's not clear why the tunnel collapsed. It's part of an ambitious road network begun by the current Hindu nationalist government to connect four major shrines in this hilly Himalayan area. It's also meant to create better access roads for the Indian military to reach the border with China. But some environmentalists and other experts have been critical of the plan. They say this area is prone to landslides, earthquakes and floods, and that heavy roadworks could trigger more disasters. Dix, the tunnel expert, says an earthquake that struck three days ago might be a clue. Akash Negi's father is one of the workers trapped inside the tunnel. He says he fears the tunnel collapsed because workers were ordered to raise a shrine that stood near the tunnel entrance earlier this month to allow for further construction. Dear Hadid, NPR News, Mumbai. This is NPR News. 
Thanks for starting your week with 90.9 WBUR. Coming up in 15 minutes on Morning Edition, we'll learn about the online front in the Russia-Ukraine war and hear from some of the Ukrainian hacktivists battling Russia in cyberspace. It's 719. I'm Scott Simon. Are you thinking about trading in your car? Why not donate it to this station instead? We'll turn it into the programs you love. Just go to WBUR.org. WBUR supporters include the Boston Foundation. Knowing that bringing people together is the best way to advance opportunity and equity in our city, the Boston Foundation is a convener, a research hub, and a civic leader. The Boston Foundation. Move equity. Move Boston. Learn more at TBF.org. I'm Scott Tong. Menstrual pain can be severe, but sometimes disregarded by those who don't suffer it. One answer is what's called the period simulator. Lux Perry created it. Kadeem Hemmings tried it in their verdict. I think every man needs to go through this experience. Agreed. That's here and now. Listen today at noon on 90.9 WBUR. Clear skies today. High temperatures may only reach around 40. It stays mostly clear tonight and falls to the mid-20s. Clouds move in tomorrow and will have highs in the low 40s. It's 33 degrees in Boston. And it's been five years since retail marijuana sales were legalized in Massachusetts, but the first edible sold still hasn't been consumed. Instead, it's been preserved at a museum in Northampton. Right now at WBUR.org, learn why it's in a museum and who put it there in the first place. Support for NPR comes from the station and from Columbia Pictures and Apple Original Films presenting Napoleon. Directed by Ridley Scott and starring Joaquin Phoenix, Napoleon tells the story of Napoleon Bonaparte's rise to power, exclusively in theaters Thanksgiving. From Total Wine and More, where customers can find gifts for people on their list, from a Cabernet to single-barrel bourbon, TotalWine.com, spirits not sold in Virginia and North Carolina, available to adults 21 or older. And from Drexel University, whose cooperative education program works to empower students to explore future careers and discover their ideal profession before graduation. This is experiential education. More at drexel.edu. It's Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Steve Inskeep. I'm Michelle Martin. And I'm Leila Faldin. Billy Porter's breakout role was on Broadway with Kinky Boots. It won him a Tony. For the FX show Pose, he was the first openly gay black man to win an Emmy as lead actor. And he's almost as well known for his wild fashion statements, like his sparkly turquoise jumpsuit at the 2020 Grammys, paired with a wide-brimmed hat that mechanically opened and closed a beaded curtain around his face. Now, Billy Porter just released a new album, with songs that often serve as little autobiographies. It's called Black Mona Lisa. I have to tell you, I don't know if it's just my own mood, but I, the music is so positive, but also made me cry when I'm listening to the lyrics. Is this the intention Of course it's the intention. Okay. (laughs) Billy Porter had to wait a long time to be this version of himself. He put out his first album in 1997, 
when he was still hiding his sexuality from the industry. In the video for his song, Show Me, you see an almost unrecognizable Billy Porter, close cropped hair, basic black and white clothing, caressing a woman's shoulders as he serenades her. I've been watching you just to see how far you would go. The industry was very homophobic at the time and I was not welcomed, I was actually put out. And to be able to come back these almost three decades later with another chance and to have it be on my own terms and grounded in my unapologetic authenticity, I'm able to speak from that place now. You know, the world has changed. Everybody told me that my queerness would be my liability haters and allies alike. Hmm. And it was for decades. And now it's actually my superpower. Hmm. You know, I'm grateful to have lived long enough to see that shift in the consciousness of the people. Not trying to patronize a little bit. Baby, I empathize, I must admit. I need you to recognize that it is. See a change starts today. song children yes i mean you talked about uh, haters and allies alike telling you your queerness would be your liability i mean is that what children's about what's children about children yeah i mean children is about facing your haters you know facing the people that set out to destroy entire swaths of people whether it's uh, you know in our inside of our governments whether it's inside of our families, our churches, whatever. And it's looking the haters straight in the face and saying, we're not going anywhere. Mm. So it's time to start living together. It's time to start honoring each other's humanity so we can live on this earth together in some version of what peace could look like. And it's, you know, shrouded inside of a disco bop beat. I know. <laughs> which is fun and celebratory. It's great. And that's what it's supposed to be. It's supposed to feel like a celebration. I like it when healing doesn't feel like work all yeah, the time. Healing through joy. There's a there are a few religious references on the album. You know, I'm thinking of lyrics like every preacher told her she's a sinner because she moved ahead of her time, or praying up every day of my life, I learned to never let the devil ever win, but it took me some time. Now you grew up in the church, right? I'd love to hear yes. how it influences your music, your life. You know, I grew up in the Pentecostal church. That space was very dangerous for me, very homophobic. I sort of lifted myself out of that around the age of 16, and I have spent my life since then working on my spiritual life. I believe that religion is man-made, spirituality is divine. Mm. I've been staying in the divine space. And unfortunately, the first thing that the religious right likes to try and take away from queer people is God. God hates X, Y, Z. And it's just simply not true. And so I've been able to, through my work, address that. I knew I was strong enough 
To make a better life for me Been praying up every day of my life I learned to never let the devil ever win But it took me some time But it took me some time No longer trying to fit that well So you may not be in the church anymore But that didn't stop your connection to God No, no, because my purpose, my calling And dare I say my ministry, and I do dare is rooted and grounded in my work. It's a different kind of ministry, but it is a ministry in and of itself, and I hold it to that level. So all the music is infused with that. I'm not ashamed anymore. I mean, listening to you, there's something, it's just so beautiful. You're in this place where you are who you are. I mean, I keep thinking of that video from 1997. I'm like, that's not Billy <laughs> Porter. <laughs> Yeah, and, you know, I look at those videos, too, and I look at them with so much love and so much compassion because I never would have been able to get to this place had I not gone through that. You know, the reason why I know what the truth is is because I lived what the untruth was. So I know the difference. You know, I can, I know the difference because I lived the difference. And I'm grateful for that time. That's Billy Porter. His new album is called Black Mona Lisa. Thank you so much. Thank you for having me. I've been caught some bad things failing and out of praise. I've been on the soul train longer than you. I'm way past my bad days. Some things get better with age. Red wine, this is NPR News. Today's top stories are next, then coming up at 7.45 on WBMR's Morning Edition. It's been a year now since the cryptocurrency exchange FTX collapsed. Many of its customers are still fighting to get back their share of billions of dollars that disappeared. It's 7.29. I'm Tiziana Deering. My colleagues and I at NPR and at WBUR are covering the Israel-Hamas war and the resulting humanitarian crisis. Whether we're reporting on the front lines or making sense of the crisis from thousands of miles away, our journalism requires editorial rigor, skill, and sensitivity. Support the journalism you trust. Make your end-of-year gift at WBUR.org. And thanks. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Dave Mattingly. Israeli tanks have moved in on a hospital in northeastern Gaza, leaving at least 12 people dead, according to the Gaza Health Ministry. Dr. Rick Brennan is the regional emergency director with the World Health Organization. He's calling on Israel and Hamas to do more to protect health care facilities. WHO always condemns the use of medical facilities for military purposes. We also condemn attacks on healthcare. And uh, in this crisis, we've documented over 150 attacks on hospitals and healthcare in Gaza, and also 33 attacks by Hamas on healthcare in Israel. He was speaking to the BBC. Israel accuses Hamas of using hospitals as command centers. Former First Lady Rosalind Carter has died at her home in Georgia at the age of 96, days after entering hospice care. Raul Bali with member station WABE says Rosalind Carter and former President Jimmy Carter were married for 77 years. You often saw them together, Braves baseball games, building houses for Habitat for Humanity, traveling through Africa, fighting diseases. 
For many people, they were really just the Carters. They grew up in planes together. They started dating in 1945. Jimmy Carter said in 2015 the best thing he ever did was marrying Rosalind. Jimmy Carter is 99 and remains in hospice care. This is NPR News. This is WBUR in Boston. I'm Rupa Shinoy. Local leaders are reacting to the death of former First Lady Rosalind Carter. She died at her home in Georgia yesterday. Senator Elizabeth Warren says Carter made the world a better place. Senator Ed Markey says she was a champion of mental health and human dignity. Carter was 96 years old. The state and federal government say they were able to get work authorizations for 1,200 migrants in the first week of a coordinated effort to expedite the process. Governor Healy told the Biden administration that the slow process was hampering efforts to help families who are living in emergency shelters. In an interview with NBC Boston, the governor said more people entering the workforce faster has a lot of benefits. So the quicker we get people working, who, by the way, want to work, the better we will be, the better for our economic growth and development. Federal, state, and nonprofit groups are working together to reduce the processing time for work authorizations down to weeks rather than months. A Lowell City Councilor faces two domestic assault charges. Corey Robinson is accused of assaulting a woman at a home in Draket last week. Last Thursday, a judge ordered him to wear a GPS monitoring device and have no contact with his accuser. Robinson pleaded not guilty. He's scheduled to be back in court in January. It's 7.33. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by A Street Frames, 42 years making frames for galleries, artists, and the public. Museum-quality framing and advice in Cambridge and Boston. astreetframes.com. The Celtics won their sixth straight game last night. They beat the Grizzlies 102-100 to in Memphis. The Seas will wrap up their road trip tonight against the Charlotte Hornets. Also tonight, the Bruins visit the Tampa Bay Lightning. Lots of sun today. High temperatures will only reach around 40. Tonight, mid-20s and mostly clear skies. Tomorrow, it grows cloudy as temperatures rise to highs in the low 40s. It's 33 degrees in Boston. You're with WBUR. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Amgen, a biotechnology company working to fight the world's toughest diseases. In a new era of human health, Amgen is dedicated to accelerating the pace of change to push beyond what's known today. From the Kauffman Foundation, providing access to opportunities that help people achieve financial stability, upward mobility, and economic prosperity, regardless of race, gender, or geography. Kauffman.org and from the sustaining members of this NPR station. It's Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Steve Inskeep. And I'm Michelle Martin. Good morning. President and Mrs. Biden say Rosalind Carter was a first lady who walked her own path with hope, warmth, and optimism. The wife of former President Jimmy Carter was 96 when she died yesterday. NPR's Chloe Weiner takes a look at her life and legacy. As First Lady, Rosalind Carter was often called the Steel Magnolia, a nod to the strength behind her gentle Southern demeanor. Here she is in a 60 Minutes interview from 1977. What do you think the public perception of Rosalind Carter is? 
I don't know. It's probably what people like you say. She's a steel magnolia. <laughs> but it's not because I am. Carter may not have seen herself as steely, but she certainly was tough. She was born Eleanor Rosalind Smith in 1927 in Plains, Georgia, a small town of less than a thousand. Her father died from cancer when she was just 13, and afterwards, Carter helped her mother care for her siblings and grandfather. Here's Kathy Cade, who worked alongside Carter in the White House. She came from very humble roots, really a woman of almost the late 19th century in terms of how life was organized in the rural South at that point in time. One day, a teenaged Rosalind was at her close friend Ruth's house, and Ruth had an older brother. His name was Jimmy. When Rosalind saw a photo of Jimmy on her best friend's wall, she thought he was the most handsome man she'd ever seen in her life. That's Kate Anderson Brower, author of the book First Women. She asked Ruth if she could take his photo home with her. The pair went on their first date in 1945, when she was a student at Georgia Southwestern College and he was in the Naval Academy. They married the next year. Their partnership became a public one when Jimmy Carter was elected governor of Georgia in 1970, making Mrs. Carter the state's first lady. Six years later, he won the presidency and Rosalind Carter ushered in a new era as first lady, revolutionizing a role that was often limited to hostess duties. I think that Rosalind was a feminist and was somebody who wanted to be a true partner to her husband, and she didn't see any reason why she shouldn't be allowed to do that. In the White House, her top priority was mental health. It was a passion Carter developed years earlier when she was campaigning across Georgia. She heard stories of people struggling with their mental health, and at the time, there were few community-based mental health services. She really began the effort in this country to modernize mental health care. The mental health care system that we have today in many ways reflects her 50 years of advocacy. After Jimmy Carter lost his re-election bid in 1980, the Carters made what they called an involuntary retirement back to Plains. Mrs. Carter told NPR in 1987 that working on their house helped keep her mind off the disappointing loss. We didn't know what we were going to do with the rest of our lives. And all of a sudden, we had to get the house in shape. We'd been gone for 10 years from home and yards in shape. Soon after, they founded the Carter Center in Atlanta, where they worked to eradicate guinea worm disease in parts of Africa and Asia and advanced human rights around the world. They also worked for Habitat for Humanity, and Mrs. Carter founded an institute to support caregivers. In 1999, President Bill Clinton awarded the Carters with the Presidential Medal of Freedom. Jimmy and Rosalind Carter have done more good things for more people in more places than any other couple on the face of the earth. In 2019, the Carters became the longest married presidential couple, celebrating their 75th anniversary two years later. The pair always tried new things together, like tennis, bird watching, turkey hunting, fly fishing, and skiing. In that same 1987 interview, NPR's Susan Stamberg witnessed their bond up close. You're offering a lifesaver to your husband, and he is refusing it. Is that correct? <laughs> yeah, that's right. <laughs> well, you prefer a different flavor. No, it's fine. <laughs> <laughs> you get along very well, it seems. You tell Rosalind and Jimmy Carter had four children and 12 grandchildren. When asked once how she'd like to be remembered, the former first lady said, I would like for people to think that I took advantage of the opportunities I had and did the best I could. Chloe Weiner, NPR News. In some ways, the war between Russia and Ukraine is the most visible in history, made so by the almost universal ability to take video and post it online. We now have an update on a part of the war that is invisible. Ukraine is upgrading its hacking. 
NPR's cybersecurity correspondent Jenna McLaughlin spoke with a secretive Ukrainian hacktivist group that says it's carrying out cyber missions. Hey there, Jenna. Hey, Steve. Who, who is this group? So they go by Cyber Regiment in English, and I spoke to two of the founding members. They're part of a trend that's a larger thing that I've been reporting on since the beginning of the war. There are a lot of these volunteer cyber groups, maybe the most famous being Ukraine's IT army. They started out pretty chaotic, disorganized, but now a lot of them are becoming more skilled and effective. Here's how Sergei Laba, one of the group's founders, put it. Now we have much more strategic and specific goals. We use our resources, uh, skills, and knowledge to get certain data from uh, certain sources or companies or whatever. What does he mean by certain data from certain sources? So he didn't go to, into too many specifics, but the founders of Cyber Regiment told me about what their current campaign is. They're calling it Undercover Chronicles. And basically the goal is to crowdsource intelligence about Russian spies. They're giving a prize to the winner, and then they're sending that intelligence on to Ukrainian officials. Here, listen to how Lapa describes it. It's like they've gamified intelligence gathering. Briefly, this online event, uh, Undercover Chronicles, uh, invites all enthusiasts to take part in a unique special mission to find three employees of the FSB of Russian Federation. Meanwhile, the Ukrainian Cyber Alliance, which is another one of these groups, they recently took credit for taking out a ransomware group with ties to Russia. Mm. And yet another group breached Alpha Bank, which is the infamous financial institution that's favored by the Russian elite. And they were helped by Ukraine's intelligence agency, the SBU, a source told me. So, Steve, not only are these groups having an impact, they're also teaming up with the government and providing real intelligence on Russian targets. And that could be bolstering an ongoing war crimes case that Ukraine's building against Russia hackers at the International Criminal Court in The Hague. Oh, interesting. So going after the Russian hackers with criminal charges, potentially. How's that going? Yeah, they've got a case. And that was bolstered last week when Google's Mandiant revealed that they tracked a cyber attack that caused a power outage in Ukraine's energy sector right at the same time as Russia launched a bunch of missiles at Ukraine's critical infrastructure last winter. So Russian hackers are re really continuing to target Ukraine's energy sector, their media, other parts of society. It's a challenge every single day. How big a part of the conflict is this cyber war? I think it still really matters, you know, especially as fighting stalls and the rest of the world is distracted by other news because hackers see that as an opportunity to get away with things that they otherwise might not. Russia's tactics are always advancing. You know, Mandiant said that this recent attack on the grid last winter was sneaky and hard to detect. But even so, Ukrainian cyber officials have told me across the board that they're feeling more prepared because they had the chance to learn about Russia's tactics last winter, and more of the country has acquired emergency backup generators. Regardless, what's happening in Ukraine is really challenging a lot of traditional notions about how we view war, including in cyberspace. Jenna, thanks. Thank you so much. NPR cybersecurity correspondent Jenna McLaughlin. This is NPR News. Coming up at the top of the hour on WBUR's Morning Edition, the No Labels organization is considering backing a third-party candidate for president. We'll look at who's behind the group. Its bipartisan leadership includes former Connecticut Senator and Democrat Joe Lieberman. Sunny and near 40 today. A few clouds move in tonight. It'll be in the mid-20s. More clouds move in throughout the day tomorrow. Temperatures will be in the low 40s. It's 33 degrees in Boston. 
We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Xfinity Internet with the Xfinity 10G Network, so everyone at home can be online even at peak hours. Xfinity from Comcast. The future starts now. A report released this morning from the Massachusetts Realtors Association shows home prices remain high across the state. WBOR's Irina Machavariani has more. Single-family home prices increased by almost 13% last month compared to last October. Condos were 8% more expensive. Massachusetts Realtors Association President David McCarthy says more buyers returned last month as interest rates dropped slightly. But he says the lack of housing is keeping prices inflated. We're just decades behind and thousands of units behind in the volume uh, needed to satisfy the population of the Commonwealth. McCarthy says realtors support Governor Healy's $4 billion housing bill to create thousands of more homes. For 90.9 WBUR, Amelina Machavariani. A plan by Rhode Island-based CVS to remake its stores into community clinics is being stifled by a shortage of pharmacists. Experts say the pandemic increased pharmacists' workloads by adding to the number of vaccines they need to administer. Leaders with CVS tell the Boston Globe they're working to fix the issue by boosting recruitment efforts and improving training. It's 744. The horror franchise Saw has been scaring people for almost 20 years. Now fans have put together an unauthorized addition to the Saw universe, a queer romantic musical. This started with two men in a bathroom with one person signing off his foot. This is a love story that I think people have wanted for 20 years. I'm Elsa Chang. More on All Things Considered from NPR News. Listen today starting at 4 on 90.9 WBUR. Support for NPR comes from the station and from StoryWorth. Each week, StoryWorth emails a loved one a question about their life. After a year, they'll publish family memories into a bound book to keep forever. Learn more at StoryWorth.com. From Capital One, with the Capital One Quicksilver card, what's in your wallet? Terms apply. Details at CapitalOne.com. And from the John S. and James L. Knight Foundation, helping NPR advance journalistic excellence in the digital age. It's Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Michelle Martin. And I'm Steve Inskeep. When the cryptocurrency exchange FTX collapsed, billions of customer dollars went missing. Founder Sam Bankman-Fried was later found guilty of fraud and money laundering, but many investors are still trying to get their money back. NPR's David Gura met one. When we first talked to Jake Thacker, it was just a few days after FTX imploded. The crypto company had filed for bankruptcy, and Thacker was trying to figure out what went down. At the time, he guessed he'd lost about $70,000. I got my lawyer involved, and he was kind of like, I don't really know, Jake. I don't don't know what's going to happen here. Well, a year has passed, so we called up Thacker, who lives in Portland, Oregon, to find out what happened to him and his money after FTX went belly up. I mean, it irrevocably changed my life. That fallout was much worse than Thacker imagined. It turns out his initial estimate was way off. The total eventually rose to 206K US that was left abandoned on the platform and unable to access. $206,000 was gone. And Thacker says that was money he'd planned to use to pay off debts and to pay taxes on stock he'd sold. It was cash and crypto that also would have come in handy a few weeks later 
When Thacker lost his job in a wave of tech layoffs, not long after FTX went bankrupt, Thacker himself filed for bankruptcy. I had no way to pay for anything, and so that was really kind of the only recourse that I had. Thacker says all this has put a strain on personal relationships. Like thousands of other FTX customers, he's spent the last year trying to recover what he had on the site, and it hasn't been easy to follow proceedings thousands of miles away, to keep tabs on what high-paid lawyers are fighting over in bankruptcy court in Delaware. Really, we're kind of in the passenger seat waiting to hear we can file a claim, but who knows when they'll get to it, and who knows what the pot will be when they do get to it. I asked Jared Elias, who teaches bankruptcy law at Harvard, how much longer he guesses a customer like Thacker will have to wait. Probably many months before your poor customer might see something. Elias says FTX is supposed to give another update in December. So far, the debtors have tracked down about $7 billion, which Elias says is pretty good. He notes that's not all in cash. Some of it is in crypto and property. They've been looking to see what are all the assets they have. And they also have been looking to see of the assets they have, you know, what can they turn into green dollars? Soon the court will decide who gets paid back when. Thacker says he's gotten no official communication about where things stand. I check in from time to time and poke around here and there, but it's not a really healthy preoccupation for me. It's just more stress and anxiety. Thacker felt relieved. There was some surprise and satisfaction, he says, after a jury found Bankman-Fried guilty last month of securities fraud and money laundering and five other criminal counts. I thought to myself, wow, the justice system actually did work in this instance, and the guilty parties got their comeuppance. Bankman-Fried could spend decades in prison, potentially the rest of his life, and three co-conspirators, former friends and colleagues who testified against him, pleaded guilty to separate charges. That verdict was a big win, Thacker says, but he notes it doesn't make people whole, people like him, whose lives were upended, who were still in limbo. At the end of the day, I'm hopeful that I will survive all of this and come out better for it on the back end. Thacker did get a new job at another tech startup, and he says he's offloaded every crypto asset he had on other exchanges, on Binance, Coinbase, and Kraken. He wants to move on, but he's still waiting. David Gura, NPR News, New York. This is NPR News. You're with WBUR. Coming up at 820 on Morning Edition, a growing number of lawsuits are attempting to hold landlords responsible for substandard housing conditions that can cause serious health problems like asthma among young children. It's 749. For the perfect spot to host your next event, Discover City Space, WBUR's hidden gem on Commonwealth Avenue. Booking now for holiday celebrations and winter events, City Space is the ideal setting for unforgettable occasions in a gorgeous state-of-the-art venue. We'll help make your vision a reality. More at WBUR.org rentals. My name is Robin Inman. Think about what your values are and what's important to you in the big picture and therefore what you hope you can leave as a legacy. Learn more about planned giving at WBUR.org legacy. The horror franchise Saw has been scaring people for almost 20 years. Now, fans have put together an unauthorized addition to the Saw universe, a queer romantic musical. More on All Things Considered from NPR News on WBUR. Here's a look at some of the stories we're following this Monday morning. More than 30 premature babies evacuated from Gaza's Al-Shifa hospital have made it into Egypt for treatment. 
Tributes are pouring in for former First Lady Rosalind Carter, who died at her Georgia home yesterday at the age of 96. And voters in Argentina have elected far-right leader Javier Millet as its next president. Stay up to date on the news all day here on 90.9 WBUR and on the WBUR app. We are funded by you, our listeners, and by H&H. Take part in a tradition as Boston as Fenway Park handles Messiah. Three performances, Friday, Saturday, and Sunday. Handleandhyden.org. Temperatures will only rise to around 40 today, but it'll be sunny. Tonight, partly cloudy in mid-20s, low 40s tomorrow, and it'll gradually grow cloudy. Rain is likely Tuesday night and on Wednesday. It's 33 degrees in Boston. This is Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Michelle Martin. I'm Steve Inskeep. And I'm Leila Fadel. One of Israel's stated goals for its invasion of Gaza is to eliminate Hamas, to prevent it from ever committing another attack like the one on October 7th. That Israel says killed some 1,200 people and saw gunmen take some 240 hostages. Since then, Israel's offensive has killed more than 12,000 people, according to Gaza health officials. And the fighting continues. But is that aim, to eliminate Hamas, even possible? Tarek Bakoni is the author of Hamas Contained, The Rise and Pacification of Palestinian Resistance, and he's president of the board of the think tank El Shabaka, the Palestinian Policy Network. He has also worked with the International Crisis Group in Ramallah and is known for his expertise on how Hamas works and thinks. I started by asking him what eradicating Hamas would look like. Well, it looks like an impossible goal and one that enables Israel to put forward quite violent plans towards the Palestinian people more broadly. So just to explain this, Hamas is fundamentally a social movement and a political movement with a military wing. So it has a vast social infrastructure embedded in charities, in healthcare, in educational facilities, in a whole host of communal and welfare practices. So the idea that Hamas can be decimated is really saying that this vast social infrastructure and political movement can be dismantled. In Bakoni's view, Israel's stated goal could mean targeting of anyone, from a low-level bureaucrat in Hamas to a person who voted for the organization back in 2006. He says using force to get rid of Hamas won't work because it doesn't answer key Palestinian aspirations, statehood and freedom. Hamas is an ideology. It's a movement that's committed to the liberation of Palestine. That ideology within Hamas is cloaked in an Islamist garb. But that ideology is not limited to Hamas. So even if Hamas militarily is severely hit by Israeli actions now, that ideology will reemerge because that's grounded in the political principles of the Palestinian struggle. So this military approach is really just a, a way to avoid dealing with the root cause of the problem. Many Israelis will tell you Hamas is simply an ideology of violence aimed at killing Israelis. They point to last month's attack as proof. Now, Hamas claims to be fighting for liberation, and that resonates for Palestinians, although the group's stated goal remains the elimination of Israel, but it also presents itself as the resistance against Israel. October 7th was an atrocity. Many, many civilians killed. And so Israeli political leadership will say this is the proper response to an atrocity that we saw in the South. Look, it's important to talk about what happened on October 7th. This didn't begin on October 7th. 
the idea that Israelis and Israeli political leaders can pretend that they are allowed and have the right to a life of full freedom and full liberty while maintaining an apartheid regime against Palestinians is nonsensical. There is a daily structural form of violence that is killing Palestinians, including civilians, day in and day out. Rights groups inside and outside of Israel accuse the government of an apartheid system. They point to the Israeli government's policies on land access, restriction of movement, unlawful killings, and limitations on the right to vote for Palestinians as examples of one group trying to dominate the other. Hamas has capitalized on that misery, and although most Palestinians are not Hamas, they're desperate for anything that might change their reality. I asked Bakoni how Palestinians view Hamas in Gaza, where a blockade by Israel with Egypt has led to widespread deprivation. I'm wondering that uh, pre-October 7th and post, I mean, they must have known what type of response they would get with killing this level of civilians. I have no illusion that they didn't expect a ferocious response to whatever they had planned on October 7th. Now, Hamas's governance in the Gaza Strip obviously has not been ideal. The movement has been accused of corruption. It has carried out pretty authoritarian tactics against Palestinians in Gaza, including stamping down on freedom of speech and political plurality. But also, because of the nature of the blockade, which Israel has imposed on the Gaza Strip in its current format since 2007, many Palestinians in Gaza put the blame for their impoverishment or the lack of economic opportunities that they might have on Hamas. But in the past, historically, Whenever Hamas engaged in military activities or armed resistance or unarmed resistance, its popularity increased before eventually sort of dropping off again when the reality of the blockade comes crashing back in. Now, in the context of October 7th specifically, I would struggle very much to believe that its popularity had dropped. But at the same time, given the scale of the destruction, I would imagine that a lot of Palestinians in Gaza are are quite fearful at the moment and questioning where Hamas wanted to go with this. So now what? The stated goal of this war, supported by the United States, is to get rid of Hamas. What happens after? The truth is that on October 7th, something shattered that's not going to be put back together that easily. For Israeli Jews, it's clear that there is no security in Israel for its citizens unless the Palestinian question is dealt with. And for Palestinians, it's clear that even if Hamas is militarily weakened, their resistance will be ongoing until their rights are achieved. So I think the only thing that can get us out of this bloodshed is to finally reckon with this reality as a political problem, not a military one. Unfortunately, the leaders, especially the Western leaders, so the EU and the current administration, seem unable or unwilling to contend with their failures in getting us here. Tarek Bakoni is the author of Hamas Contained, The Rise and Pacification of Palestinian Resistance. Thank you so much for your time. Thank you for having me. Now, this is just one voice. For differing views and analysis, go to npr.org slash updates. The 
This is Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Leila Faldil. I'm Steve Inskeep. And I'm Michelle Martin. Sunny and near 40 today, mostly clear in mid-20s tonight, low 40s tomorrow, and clouds will move in throughout the day, making way for rain Tuesday night and on Wednesday. It's 33 degrees in Boston, and we're coming up on 8 o'clock. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Cambridge School of Culinary Arts in Porter Square. With culinary and pastry certificate and diploma programs for aspiring chefs, cambridgeculinary.com or on their app. I'm here now, host Robin Young, and this is 90.9 WBUR-FM Boston, 92.7 WBUA-Tisbury, 89.1 WBUH-Booster. Listen anytime with our app or at WBUR.org. WBUR, Boston's NPR news station. Heavy fighting has broken out around a hospital in northern Gaza as Israeli forces continue to focus on medical facilities they say are being used by Hamas. It's Monday, November 18th. This is WBUR's Morning Edition. Good morning, I'm Rupa Shanoi. Coming up, we remember former First Lady Rosalind Carter, who's died at the age of 96. She often talked about how much she loved political life. I just like the whole, I like all of it. I like getting out and meeting people and talking with them and learning the country. It was just fascinating to me. Also this hour. He didn't get any better when we made the decision to not let him stay at the house. And he could have died. Why Massachusetts experts are trying an approach to addiction recovery that departs from the usual tough love methods. Plus, voters in Argentina have elected a flashy, far-right libertarian who's compared to Donald Trump as president. Sunny, near 40 today. It's 8.01. Now the news. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Nora Rahm. Defense Secretary Lloyd Austin is on an unannounced visit to Ukraine. He arrived in Kyiv earlier today. As NPR's Nathan Rott reports, Austin is emphasizing continued U.S. support to Kyiv, despite Congress having yet to approve additional money for Ukraine in its war with Russia. The visit, the Defense Department said in a release, is intended to reinforce to Ukrainian leadership America's staunch support and underscore, quote, the continued U.S. commitment to providing Ukraine with the security assistance it needs to defend itself from Russian aggression. The Biden administration and Congress have given tens of billions of dollars to Ukraine since Russia's full-scale invasion of the country nearly two years ago. Continued aid has become more contentious in the halls of Congress, though, with the U.S. yet to approve another round of funding to Ukraine. Nathan Rapp, NPR News, Odessa, Ukraine. A wide-ranging storm is brewing that could affect much of the eastern half of the U.S., NPR's Amy Held reports it could get in the way of a busy travel week. Just as holiday travel builds up, the storm is building up, too, over the middle part of the country, around the St. Louis area, down toward Memphis and New Orleans, moving into the mid-Atlantic before heading offshore by Wednesday. Bob Orvac is lead forecaster with the National Weather Service. Each day is going to be producing rain, and any time we have rains, there may be travel delays. It comes as AAA says holiday travel is up slightly over last year. A projected 55 million people will head out 50 miles or farther, mostly by car. And a second storm this weekend could impact the return home for some. It may affect the travel back for a lot of people, especially along the East Coast. The western part of the U.S. is, on the other hand, relatively dry around Thanksgiving. 
Amy Held, NPR News. Former President Donald Trump visited Texas yesterday as he campaigns for the Republican nomination for his second term. He picked up the endorsement of Texas Governor Greg Abbott. We need a president who's going to secure the border. We need a president who's going to restore law and order in the United States of America. Abbott has been a strong supporter of Trump and his views on immigration. Lawyers in one of Trump's criminal trials are due in court in Washington this morning. A federal appeals court will hear arguments on whether to reimpose a gag order against the former president. He's charged with plotting to overturn the results of the 2020 election. The judge had ordered Trump not to make inflammatory statements about the lawyers or potential witnesses. But the order was lifted while the matter is being litigated. Trump's lawyers say it violates his free speech rights. Prosecutors say the order is needed to prevent Trump from intimidating witnesses. Trump now faces 91 felony counts in four jurisdictions. You're listening to NPR News from Washington. A Philadelphia radio station has stopped playing Taylor Swift's music in advance of tonight's game between the Philadelphia Eagles and the Kansas City Chiefs. NPR's Chloe Veltman reports the temporary ban is due to the fact the pop star is dating Chiefs player Travis Kelsey. Q102 began its Taylor Swift fast at 5.05 p.m. on Friday after playing her hit song, Shake It Off. A post on Q102 Philly's website states, quote, The Eagles-Chiefs game is Monday night and we need the birds to focus. A lot hangs on the outcome of the upcoming game. The Eagles lost to the Chiefs at the Super Bowl nine months ago. Nevertheless, Eagles fans took to social media to ridicule the radio station's stunt. Football equals football, not access Hollywood, griped one fan on the official Philadelphia Eagles fan group page on Facebook. Despite the temporary hiatus, Q102 also expressed its enthusiasm for Swift's songs, adding, Don't worry, we'll be Swifties again on Tuesday. Chloe Veltman, NPR News. A third round of United Nations talks on plastics wrapped up in Nairobi, Kenya over the weekend. About 150 countries had spent the past week trying to come up with a plan on how to deal with plastic waste. Instead of the Hope for Treaty, they ended up with 500 different proposals. Some wanted to reduce plastic waste by recycling, others by reducing the production of new plastic. Negotiators want to come up with an agreement by the end of next year. I'm Nora Rahm. NPR News in Washington. From WBWAR in Boston, I'm Rupa Shinoy. The head of the T says the $24 billion cost to fix the transit system does not mean it needs that money immediately. MBTA General Manager Phil Ang told WCVBs on the record that instead it's more of a planning tool. To be able to set priorities, to be able to talk about bigger picture, longer term needs for the T, Uh, Because the idea is to be able to use this now to have those conversations on long-term funding. Ang announced last week the team needed more than $24 billion to get trains, tracks, stations and other infrastructure back to a good place. That money would not go toward expanding the system. Ang stressed that despite the team needing a lot of repairs, it is safe for commuters.
Governor Healy plans to announce new ways to prevent hate crimes in Massachusetts. Later this morning, Healy is expected to highlight her administration's commitment to addressing the problem. The announcement follows a new report from the Anti-Defamation League that found hate crimes rose more than 30 percent in the state from 2021 to 2022. Congressman Jim McGovern will be part of a group walking more than 40 miles over the next two days. Their goal is to raise half a million dollars for the Western Massachusetts Food Bank. McGovern says he wants to raise awareness about the agencies that help people dealing with food insecurity. They have job training programs. They reach out to the community. They they do cooking classes. They help people get access to fresh, healthy, local produce. They work with our farmers. I mean, it's an incredible operation, and I'm really proud to be supporting them. The group will walk from Springfield to Northampton today, and tomorrow the walk goes from Northampton to Greenfield. A new child care center is set to open in Mattapan today. The new Kitty's Corner Center was established through funding from the City of Boston and Boston Medical Center. The center will serve families living in Mattapan, Dorchester, and Roxbury. Officials say it will help address a shortage of licensed daycare facilities in the area. It's 808. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Ocean State Job Lot, partnering with customers to help veterans stay warm by giving coats to those in need. OceanStateJobLot.com. The Celtics beat the Grizzlies 102-100 to last night in Memphis. The Seas will visit the Charlotte Hornets tonight. Also tonight, the Bruins will visit the Tampa Bay Lightning. Sunny today with a high only near 40. Clear overnight with temperatures in the 20s. Increasing clouds tomorrow. It'll be in the lower 30s. Rain for Wednesday. It's 33 degrees in Boston. Thanks for listening to WBUR. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by the Joyce Foundation committed to advancing racial equity and economic mobility for the next generation in the Great Lakes region. Learn more at JoyceFDN.org. It's Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Steve Inskeep. And I'm Michelle Martin. Good morning. Condolences are pouring in following the death of former First Lady Rosalind Carter. She died yesterday at her home in Plains, Georgia at 96. President Biden and First Lady Jill Biden said they remembered her for hope and warmth and optimism. Carter served her White House role from 1977 to 1981 and is remembered for spending even more years advocating for mental health and caregivers. Roe Baldy covers politics for WABE in Atlanta, and he's with us ahead of the start of ceremonies next week, which will honor her life. Good morning, Raul. Good morning. So Rosalind Carter was sometimes referred to as the steel magnolia. Would you remind us about why that is? As First Lady, she was sometimes called steel magnolia by the media because she had a very gentle persona about her, but she was tough in her support of her husband and her causes. In a 1984 interview with NPR, she talked about her advocacy. I don't think I'm smarter than Jimmy Carter, but I love the political life. I loved it. I like the intrigue and it's and, and having one election, um, people who really support you in the next election will be your opponents, and the ones who are your opponents will be your supporters. I just like the whole, I like all of it. I like getting out and meeting people and talking with them and learning the country. It was just fascinating to me. I miss it. And while she did miss it, she had another outlet for her advocacy. When the Carter Center was built in Atlanta in the 80s, 
She kept talking about mental health and caregiving. She wrote books about it, kept saying she wanted to fight the stigma around mental health, hoping people would have those important conversations. One of the things she did start was the Mental Health Journalism Fellowship Program at the Carter Center. That's been going since 1996 with the goal of more accurate and in-depth reporting on mental health. She also had a deep passion for advocating for caregivers. That dates back to when her father had cancer, eventually passing away when she was 13. She took on the caregiving role as the oldest of four siblings. Would you tell us a bit more about her relationship with Jimmy Carter? They were married for a very long time. 77 years. And you often saw them together. Braves baseball games, building houses for Habitat for Humanity, traveling through Africa, fighting diseases. For many people, they were really just the Carters. You know, when I covered Jimmy Carter's 99th birthday celebration a few weeks ago, so many people had a story about seeing the Carters together. Their last appearance together was at the Plains Peanut Festival, public appearance, where they rode in a parade back in September. They grew up in Plains together. They started dating in 1945. Jimmy Carter said in 2015, the best thing he ever did was marrying Rosalind. The Carters had four children, 12 grandchildren, 14 great-grandchildren. One of those grandchildren, Jason Carter, served in the Georgia State Senate, now works as a trustee at the Carter Center. And how are people in her home state remembering her? Condolence notes that are coming from all over the world and from across the country. You heard from President Biden and First Lady Jill Biden, Georgia's Governor Brian Kemp, who was among the first to pay his respects. He highlighted Carter's work championing mental health services and promoting the state she loved across the globe. Memorial services are scheduled to take place next week in Sumter County and in Atlanta starting Monday through Wednesday of next week. That is Raul Bali with WABE in Atlanta. Raul, thank you. Thank you. How would the 2024 presidential campaign be different if there were three serious candidates? Some big funders seem eager to support an alternative to Joe Biden and Donald Trump, each of whom leads the polling for his party's nomination, though we should note no vote has been cast yet. The big funders have been working to get a party called No Labels on the ballot and have talked up centrist figures such as West Virginia Senator Joe Manchin. Chris Steyerwalt is following No Labels. He is a contributing editor at The Dispatch and a senior fellow at the American Enterprise Institute, and he's on the line. Good morning, sir. Oh, good morning. Who is No Labels, exactly? Well, No Labels, we know best maybe from the Problem Solvers Caucus in the House of Representatives, moderate Democrats and moderate Republicans who preach uh, cooperation and have not solved many problems, but have been around to try to be a a moderating force. They're led by a woman named Nancy Jacobson, uh, a former Democrat, but a former Clinton Democrat, centrist Democrat, who has been leading the effort for quite a while now uh, with the goal of bringing together people. And when you look at their national leadership, the people they put forward, it's Joe Lieberman, former Democrat turned independent senator from Connecticut, and Larry Hogan, the former Republican governor of Maryland. Okay. Um, And they talk up people like Manchin, who says he's not running for re-election from West Virginia. Manchin is a Democrat, we should note. I guess we would say he's a conservative Democrat or a moderate Democrat, although he provided a lot of key votes for Democrats in the last several years. How is the presidential campaign different if someone like Manchin is suddenly on the ballot in a number of states? 
Well, they're on the ballot. No Labels is on the ballot now in 12 states. And that's not that many states, though they say they're going to make it all the way. But that's not that many states. But the states where they are are already really important. So Nevada, Arizona, North Carolina, three of the closest states in 2020, most important, and Florida, where Republicans have had a good run, but where the results are tend to be very close. So you can imagine how if there was an alternative candidate, and there will be, by the way, alternative candidates in these places, yeah. but as you say, one that was funded uh, and one that was well-known and one that was campaigning, uh, that it would be definitely consequential. I'm trying to figure out who it would be consequential for. I mean, people will presume this candidate can't easily win, but would they pull more from the Republican side or the Democratic side? Well, I think that's the problem that Joe Manchin has right now. So we don't know how you become the no labels candidate, because I don't know that no labels knows how you become the uh, no labels candidate yet. They're going to have a convention in Dallas in April, and they're going to pick, they say, a bipartisan ticket, a Republican and a Democrat as president or vice president, and that they're going to put these people forward, give them their blessing, and then they'll go out and run their own campaign. I think the problem that Manchin has is that the folks who are around this organization pretty clearly seem like they don't want Donald Trump to be president again, and that if they had to choose between Joe Biden and Donald Trump, that they would rather it be Biden. And if that's the case, running a Democrat comes with some significant problems. Oh, because Manchin is pro-choice. Just to pick one issue, he would not get a lot of Republican votes for that reason, you think? He's pro-choice-ish, I, uh, okay. I think. Yeah, fair enough. <laughs> but he's got a moment in the Senate now where he is unbound by uh, the need to suck up to Democrats in order. And Democrats don't like Joe Manchin because of all of the times that he has spoiled the fun for them on different votes. He's got a, a magic moment now in the Senate with a bunch of consequential votes coming up in which he has the opportunity to move rightward further still uh, and brand himself in that way, which might be helpful in his bid. Okay. All right, Chris Steyerwald, thanks so much. Really appreciate it. You bet. Daily bombardments of Gaza by Israel in the wake of the October Hamas attack have wiped out entire families. The October 7th attack resulted in the deaths of more than 1,200 people in Israel, and roughly 240 people were taken hostage. But since then, Israel's aggressive military response has resulted in the deaths of more than 12,000 Palestinians. And advocates for the Palestinians say their stories are not reaching the world. Three of our writers have been killed already. Some of our writers lost their loved ones. Ahmad Al-Nauk is a 29-year-old journalist now in London and a founder of the group We Are Not Numbers, which operates in Gaza, posting online about lives that were lost. We wanted to show the world that the Palestinians who lose their lives in Gaza are not just mere statistics. They have stories, they have dreams. Al-Nauk lost more than 20 members of his own family on October 22nd when a missile hit his home in southern Gaza. That's where Israel told people in northern Gaza to go, but then stepped up its attacks on the south. No one wants to have their kids killed. If they had received a warning, they would have evacuated immediately. They were sleeping and they were bombed without any warning. I lost my father, I lost my two brothers, three sisters, 14 nieces and nephews, only one of the kids survived. 
His nephew and sister-in-law were the only survivors. He told us of people he lost, including his father. He was a very, very gentle man, very kind person, very simple man who just wanted to live with his children in his home, in his safe home. My older brother is a lawyer and he was a civil servant. My younger brother worked at a human rights organization. He was a translator and a researcher. My younger brother got a scholarship to do his master's degree in Australia just a few months ago. And he was very, very happy. And then he was killed. He did not survive to go to Australia. Al Nauk's brother Ayman was also killed by an Israeli airstrike in Gaza in 2014. I felt that we are unheard, that people don't care about us, that our suffering is not noticed from anyone in the world, especially the West. He says we are not numbers is meant to change that using the Internet. The public perception has changed because of social media. The Palestinians are now serving as citizen journalists who are taking videos and pictures and talking about their experiences, and they made a huge difference. While also giving writers a way to remember and pay tribute. Because I believe the Palestinians, we don't have the luxury right now to grieve. We have the responsibility to speak. So please, when you have the choice to give the Palestinians a voice, please do that. For more perspectives and stories of the human impact of this war on both Palestinians and Israelis, go to npr.org slash Middle East. This is NPR News. Good morning. Thanks for starting your week with WBUR. Coming up in 15 minutes on Morning Edition, voters in Argentina went to the polls this weekend to choose a new president. We'll hear about who came out on top and how he plans to deal with the country's rising poverty and triple-digit inflation. It's 820. WBUR supporters include Uncommon Feasts, offering full-service culinary event catering for your distinctive social and corporate gatherings, Gather around. Let's feast. In times of crises, journalism plays a vital role. I'm Lisa Mullins. At WBUR and NPR, our job is to ferret out the facts and report the fullest version of the truth possible, challenge assumptions, hold officials to account, bear witness, and tell the stories of those with the most at stake. We can't do our job without your help. Make your year-end contribution at WBUR.org or call one 800 909 9287. Thank you. Clear skies and around 40 today. Right now it's 34 degrees in Boston. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Columbia Pictures and Apple Original Films presenting Napoleon. Directed by Ridley Scott and starring Joaquin Phoenix, Napoleon tells the story of Napoleon Bonaparte's rise to power, exclusively in theaters Thanksgiving. From Subaru, the Subaru Share the Love event runs through January 2nd, By year's end, Subaru and its retailers will have donated over $285 million to charity. Subaru.com slash share. And from Viking, dedicated to bringing travelers to the heart of each destination by river and ocean, offering programs designed for cultural enrichment and immersive experiences on board and on shore. Viking.com. This is NPR.
It's Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Michelle Martin. And I'm Steve Inskeep. Poor housing conditions can devastate the health of a resident, and that is especially true for children with conditions like asthma. For our series Living Better, NPR's Maria Godoy reports on one program in which a lawyer has become part of the medical team. On a recent fall day, I visited a rental home in Washington, D.C. to tag along on a home inspection of sorts. This room looks a lot better. The walls used to be like really dark, like black and green all up the walls. That's Leisha Jab. She's a lawyer with the Children's Law Center, a D.C.-based legal service organization that fights to improve kids' health. She's here to make sure that pervasive mold and other problems in this home are being fixed. Her client, Shelly, points to improvements in the kitchen. We're only using Shelly's first name to protect her against potential retaliation from her landlord. Yeah, fungus, mushroom growing out right here. Wish they fixed that. Yeah, you had a mushroom growing out of your sink at one point. Like an actual mushroom? Yeah. (laughs) Shelly lives in the home with her seven-year-old daughter, and the mold issues often set off her asthma. It was difficult because she really couldn't really breathe during those tough times. Her daughter frequently ended up in the ER. It was devastating. It's giving me anxiety. It's taking away a lot of her education. This summer, the doctors at the asthma clinic at Children's National Hospital decided Shelly's daughter needed a different kind of specialist, which is how Jap was assigned as her attorney. Now Shelly's home is undergoing repairs. So it looks much better. <laughs> yes. Jap is one of about 20 staff attorneys and investigators who work as part of the Children's Law Center's Healthy Together program. It's a medical-legal partnership with several D.C. area clinics. Doctors will call in the lawyers when a low-income family needs help with housing conditions that are harming kids' health. Often, it's asthma. In D.C., a child with asthma who lives in a low-income community is 20 times more likely to end up in the ER than a child in a more affluent neighborhood. Tracy Goodman directs the program. It could be mice infestation, rats, roach infestation. It could be a lot of water damage that creates mold. All of those are allergens, and that can exacerbate the child's asthma. Lawyers start off by sending a letter to the landlord informing them of their legal obligation to make fixes. If the landlord doesn't comply, they'll take them to a special housing conditions court to force them to make repairs. When we're successful and the conditions are fixed in the home or the family is able to move to another unit, another home, you can see very quickly how the child's asthma has improved. And there's research to back that up. Data collected by the Children's Law Center found that after a legal intervention, Kids with asthma experienced fewer trips to the ER and fewer hospitalizations. Karen Dale is the CEO of AmeriHealth Caritas DC, a Medicaid plan that is now reimbursing Children's Law Center after successful legal interventions. There's so much evidence, right, that shows that what happens in a doctor's office in the seven to 10 minutes that someone spends there is not the best predictor of their overall health and well-being, that it is all the other things that occur that's impacting their health. She says connecting low-income patients with legal aid is good medicine. It's also cost-effective. Dale co-authored research that found that in the 18 months after a legal intervention by Children's Law Center, managed care organizations spent an average of $10,000 less on health care for kids with asthma, mostly due to reduced hospital visits. For children with the most severe asthma, the savings were closer to $60,000. That's because kids with the most severe cases can end up admitted to the hospital dozens of times. 
That includes Kena Bowen's five-year-old daughter, Devea. Yeah, like it used to be like every month, back to back. Bowen moved to D.C. when Devea was an infant so she could get specialized care at Children's National Hospital. Her first apartment was pretty bad, with spiders and large mice everywhere that triggered Devea's asthma. It was real bad. Yeah, she stayed sick a lot there. Her second apartment was even worse. She says the outside looked like an abandoned house. Inside, there was lots of visible mold, water stains from leaks, rodents, and roaches everywhere. They weren't just like roaches crawling in different areas. It was like a pile of roaches in one. In my refrigerator, when I was cooking, we was getting bit up, and yeah, it was bad. Bowen says she tried to get the property manager to fix things, but her requests were ignored. And the landlord, like, he didn't respond at all. So she turned to the Children's Law Center for help. Ashley Close was Bowen's attorney. She took the landlord to court. A housing inspector found extensive repairs were needed. The repairs were so bad that she would need to leave for them to actually schedule the repairs. That she couldn't be in the unit because of how extensive the damage was. A lawyer for Bowen's former landlord told NPR in an email that, quote, the landlord did not know that there were repairs needed until the tenant filed the court case. The lawyer said the landlord took action to remedy the situation. Close says the landlord offered to either put her client in a hotel or settle the case. They took the settlement because Kena Bone was able to move into another unit from the housing subsidy program she relies on. Tracy Goodman of the Children's Law Center says it's often cheaper for landlords to risk paying a fine from the city than it is to make repairs. And we also see that there are instances of owners that are essentially wanting to push out the low-income residents so that they can redevelop and then rent at higher rates or sell the properties for great profit. She says D.C. has a shortage of low-income housing, which makes it all the more important to make sure that when clients do find a place they can afford, it's actually livable. As for Kena Bowen, she says her daughter Devea is doing much better health-wise since they moved into their new apartment last year. She still has serious asthma, but she hasn't been hospitalized in about a year. Hey, Daddy, you catch! On the day I visited, Devea was outdoors playing ball with her dog, Teddy. Daddy, catch! Yes, Daddy! Just like any happy, healthy five-year-old kid. <laughs> Maria Godoy, NPR News. Support for NPR health coverage comes from Procter & Gamble, maker of Metamucil, a fiber supplement containing psyllium, a plant-based fiber for trapping and removing waste in the digestive system, designed to be taken every day. More at metamucil.com. This is NPR News. Today's top stories are next. Then coming up at 845 on Morning Edition, we'll hear about local efforts to try a new approach to addiction recovery. It's 829. WVUR supporters include MathWorks, creators of MATLAB and Simulink software, powering the Engineering Design Workshop exhibit at the Museum of Science, mathworks.com MOS. And VU's Metropolitan College, offering graduate degrees providing competitive skills in the field of marketing. Find on-campus master's programs in areas such as advertising and innovation and technology, along with online degrees in health communication and global marketing management. Visit bu.edu met. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Dave Mattingly. 
Lawyers for former President Donald Trump are expected to ask a federal appeals court today to strike down a gag order imposed on Trump by the judge in his federal election subversion case. The attorneys argue the order violates Trump's free speech rights as he campaigns for the White House. The gag order restricts the former president's ability to publicly comment on court personnel and potential witnesses, as well as special counsel Jack Smith and his staff. A number of premature babies have been moved from the Al-Shifa hospital complex in Gaza across the border into Egypt amid the war between Israel and Hamas. The World Health Organization and the U.N. were involved in the relocation after the Al-Shifa hospital ran out of fuel and power was cut. More than two dozen babies were being moved to Egypt. NPR's Lauren Freyer says this follows the release of video by the Israeli military, which it says shows a Hamas tunnel under that hospital. Israel's released a bunch of videos it says prove that Hamas not only operated out of tunnels under the hospital, but that it brought at least three hostages into the hospital and in fact killed one of them there. They showed us hospital security camera footage and video recorded apparently by a robot that went into those tunnels. NPR hasn't been able to independently verify any of that footage. This is NPR News. From WBUR in Boston, I'm Rupa Shanoi. Local lawmakers are remembering the legacy of former First Lady Rosalind Carter. Carter died at her home in Georgia yesterday. She was 96. Governor Healy says Carter's legacy will inspire future generations. Ellen Price, the head of the JFK Library in Dorchester, said, We remember her fierce determination to improve the lives of those who have mental illness, and we honor her commitment to enriching the lives of all Americans. Homeless families are struggling now that the Massachusetts shelter system has reached a self-imposed cap. Families in need of shelter are being put on a wait list. Donna Mitria with the nonprofit La Collaborativa says the families locked out of the system are traumatized. She blames lawmakers and state officials for not being better prepared. We declared a state of emergency many months ago. We knew this was coming, and to not even have a concrete plan, at least one place to send these families, I think is a a huge failure. Lawmakers and state officials disagree over who should be responsible for funding and setting up safe places for waitlisted families. A spokesperson for the state agency overseeing the shelter system says the state is working with the United Way to set up overflow shelter sites. Boston Bruins player Milan Lucic is due in court today. Prosecutors say he's facing an assault and battery charge but are providing few other details. The Bruins announced Saturday that Lucic will be put on indefinite leave from the team. It's 8.33. We are funded by you, our listeners, and by Blue Cross Blue Shield of Massachusetts. Medicare plans for every lifestyle and budget. Visit bluecrossma.com slash go. The Celtics' winning streak is up to six games. They beat the Grizzlies last night 102-100 to in Memphis. Chris Tapps Porzingis led Boston with 26 points in the win. The Seas will visit the Charlotte Hornets tonight. The Bruins are also on the road tonight to skate with the Tampa Bay Lightning. Lots of sun today. That's the good news. The bad news is that high temperatures will only reach about 40. Tonight, mid-20s and mostly clear skies. Tomorrow, it grows cloudy as temperatures rise to highs in the low 40s. It's 33 degrees in Boston. You're with WBUR. Support for NPR comes from this station 
and from FX, presenting Fargo from creator Noah Hawley and starring Juno Temple, John Hamm, and Jennifer Jason Leigh. The series returns on November 21st on FX, streaming on Hulu. From Procter & Gamble, maker of Nervive Nerve Relief. Nervive is designed to reduce occasional nerve aches, weakness, and discomfort in hands or feet due to aging. Learn more at NerviveHealth.com. And from the sustaining members of this NPR station. It's Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Steve Inskeep. And I'm Michelle Martin. Today, a federal appeals court in Washington will consider restraints on former president and current criminal defendant Donald Trump. Trump is asking the court to free him from a gag order in his federal election interference case. His bombastic remarks about prosecutors and witnesses are pitting his First Amendment rights against the need to protect next year's trial. NPR Justice Correspondent Carrie Johnson has been following the arguments, and she's here with us to talk more about them. Good morning. Good morning to you. So remind us of what kinds of things Donald Trump has been saying about this case. A few days after Trump was indicted in August on four felony counts connected to the storming of the Capitol, he posted online, if you go after me, I'm coming after you. He's also called the prosecutors deranged and said they're thugs. Trump has said this judge is a fraud and a hack. He's called his former vice president delusional. And he says the former chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff did something so bad that in olden times, the punishment would have been death. He also said his former chief of staff is a weakling and a coward. And those officials, Mike Pence, Mark Milley, Mark Meadows, they all may be called to testify against Trump at trial. Those kinds of things led the judge to impose a gag order on Trump to bar him from attacking potential witnesses and prosecutors and court staff. Okay, I think that people remember that those remarks were pretty disturbing coming from anybody, but especially a former commander in chief. But having said that, the appeals court has put a pause on the gag order while it considers Trump's arguments. So what are they? They say this gag order violates his First Amendment rights, as well as the rights of millions of voters who want to listen to Donald Trump. And Trump's team says the prosecutors and witnesses Trump's been blasting are themselves high-level officials and public figures who often criticize Donald Trump in public statements. They say there's really no evidence of any actual or imminent threats to the administration of justice or to this trial that's set for next spring. So I take it the Justice Department is defending this gag order, what are they saying? Absolutely. Prosecutors say this is part of a pattern where Trump targets someone and his supporters respond with threats and intimidation. They point out a woman in Texas has been charged with threatening the judge in this D.C. case. They remind us that election worker Ruby Freeman says she was afraid to go outside after Trump made false accusations against her. And that after Trump posted what he said was former President Obama's address this year, a heavily armed man showed up there. The judge in New York who's hearing a civil fraud case against Trump has faced hundreds of threatening calls and letters, too. Prosecutors say Trump is not just a political candidate. He's also a criminal defendant, and he shouldn't be able to launch a smear campaign against people in the course of this trial proceeding. So it's my understanding that the appeals court moved pretty quickly on this gag order issue. Does that tell us anything about what could come next? We know the three judges who are going to hear argument in this case of the three, two were appointed by former President Obama, a third by President Biden. And the gag order issue is really the first big dispute to come before the D.C. Circuit as part of this federal election interference case against Trump. It will not be the last. Trump is trying to get these charges against him dismissed. He's arguing he has sweeping presidential immunity. And this is double jeopardy because he was acquitted by the Senate in that impeachment proceeding related to January 6th. If the lower court 
court judge rules against him on either of those issues, Trump wants to appeal to the D.C. Circuit and possibly the Supreme Court, which could move this trial that's currently set for March 2024 until later in the year. And we know Trump has been looking for any opportunity to delay. That is NPR Justice Correspondent Carrie Johnson. Carrie, thank you. You're welcome. An ultra-conservative economist who has pledged to take a chainsaw to Argentina's troubled economy has won a polarizing presidential race. Javier Millet won the runoff, defeating the ruling party's candidate, which was the country's economy minister, who's overseen one of the worst economic crises in decades. Now, Millet has a style that has drawn comparisons to Donald Trump. He captured voters' anger, he dealt a blow to the political establishment in his country, and handed a victory to the global far-right movement. We're joined now by NPR's Carrie Kahn in Buenos Aires to tell us more. Carrie, good morning. Good morning. I understand that this is a huge political upset. So how did Millet and his supporters pull this off? It is huge, but the economic situation here in Argentina has been so bad for so long. Inflation is heading toward 200%. The peso loses value every day. People just can't make ends meet. And both the left and the right political establishment haven't been able to fix the situation. So this is not really a surprise that an outsider, even one as eccentric and ultra-conservative as Malay could win, I think the biggest surprise here is why it took so long. So what did Malay have to say about his victory? He went out onto the street last night to address thousands celebrating and told the crowd that the work before them would be difficult and not for the timid. He said the government has left us with a destroyed economy with skyrocketing inflation and a huge debt. But he told the crowd, echoing his standard loud, expletive, lace stump speeches, that he has the determination and the force of his libertarian principles to put Argentina back on its feet and move it forward, all to thunderous applause and his fans' familiar chants of liberty, liberty. Did the ruling party candidate speak last night, Sergio Massa? What did he say? It was quite stunning, Michelle, how fast he came out and conceded. The official numbers weren't even out, and he was congratulating Malay and pledging a smooth transition. In the end, it was an 11-point difference. Massa had a tough campaign to run. Look, he's the current economy minister who's been overseeing Argentina's bad-to-worse finances for the last year. He couldn't run on his record, so he ran this huge fear campaign warning voters of Malay's radical changes, and clearly it didn't work, and his parentist party, which has been one of the dominant forces in the country for decades, was dealt the stunning blow yesterday. So, Carrie, say more about what the voters were telling you. Many I talked to were ardent Malay supporters, but there were a lot of voters who were desperate for change, but very worried about Malay's eccentricities. Um, I'll just highlight a few here. He has five clone dogs that he calls his children. His sister is his closest advisor and maybe the first lady. He has this famous temper and no political experience. Voter Darian Tarengo told me he wasn't worried about any of that. Es muy impulsivo, quizás un poco hasta emocional. He says, sure, he's impulsive and gets emotional, but his economic policies are sound and he'll have plenty of people around him to help him learn the ropes, he said. And Millet will have to do that fast. He takes power on December 10th. That is NPR's Carrie Khan from Buenos Aires. Carrie, thank you so much. You're welcome.
This afternoon, and all things considered, how can any Russian journalists report independently? Since Russia's invasion of Ukraine, President Vladimir Putin cracked down on the few outlets that tried, which is why some journalists have moved offshore. Listen to NPR on your smartphone, smart speaker, or your radio. This is NPR News. Coming up in 10 minutes on WBUR, the Marketplace Morning Report updates us on how families are faring one month after federal pandemic-era subsidies for child care ran out. Sunny and near 40 today. A few clouds move in tonight. It'll be in the mid-20s. More clouds move in throughout the day tomorrow. Temperatures will be in the low 40s. It's 34 degrees in Boston. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by AMS and the Weather Channel with the power of precipitation. New England weather is predictably unpredictable. Learn how water vapor affects our local weather with scientists from Brown, Princeton, and the Weather Channel, December 1st at City Space. Delicious food and drinks included. Tickets at itowardsthesky.com. And direct tire and auto service, a dealer alternative, your local mechanic and tire dealer serving Newton, Watertown, and the surrounding communities. DirectTire.com. The head of the Federal Reserve Bank of Boston remains optimistic about the economy. Susan Collins says she believes the U.S. Central Bank can lower inflation without too much damage to the job market. She says doing so will require interest rates to remain high until enough evidence shows inflation is under control. Collins says she's also not taking the idea of further interest rate increases off the table. Boston-based New Balance will break ground today on a new facility in New Hampshire. The Londonderry location is expected to create more than 150 jobs in the area. The $70 million project will be New Balance's sixth manufacturing facility in the U.S. It's 844. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by the Elliott Hotel a luxury boutique hotel in Boston with uni restaurant and sashimi bar for holiday parties and weekend getaways. ElliottHotel.com And Revision Energy. Sunbug Solar is now part of Revision Energy, a solar installer committed to fighting climate change in New England. SunbugSolar.com This is WBOR's Morning Edition. I'm Rupa Shanoi. The loved ones of people struggling with addiction are often told they need to take a tough love approach to stop the abuse. Now some local addiction experts are questioning that thinking. They say friends and family can play a different role in helping people into recovery. WBOR's Deborah Becker reports. Close to one-third of all adults in the U.S. say someone in their family has been addicted to opioids. Ken Feldstein is among them. His son, Brendan, was in college when another parent called and said this. Kenny, I don't know if you realize this or know this, but Brendan is really struggling with heroin. And I was, like, floored. Ken is sitting outside a coffee shop in southeastern Massachusetts. He recalls the years of looking for help for Brendan in about two dozen treatment programs and sober homes and always feeling alone. We felt we couldn't, you know, talk to neighbors or friends about it. The the stigma is so, so strong. He and his now late wife Barbara went to peer support groups. While that helped, Ken says the advice was clear. Distance yourself from your loved one or your enabling. And that, he was told, would be almost like putting the syringe in his child's arm. So, big gulp of that Kool-Aid, 
And it sounded very reasonable because nothing we were doing was working. Ken says they opted for the so-called tough love approach, and they didn't allow Brendan to come home. Ken was anxious. He didn't get any better when we made the decision to not let him stay at the house, and he could have died. Ken didn't want to take the risk and welcomed Brendan back into the family. So I landed on love. I still feel that love wins. I'll never forget the look on his face. It was just a a mixture of love and sadness. Brendan noticed the shift. Of all the experiences that I had in trying to get sober and failing, that stayed with me. Even though research has shown that human connection is key in helping overcome addiction, loved ones are not often included in treatment, and there is little support for them during or afterward. For Brendan, treatment was just a short break. You know, did it give me a, a bed and food, and, and was that helpful in a survival sense? Yes. Did the experience help me remain sober? I think I used the day I got out. That pattern was about to change. Brendan was in yet another treatment program for just a few weeks when his mom entered hospice care with breast cancer. The program's rules were if he left for any reason, he could not return. But Brendan did go to help care for his dying mother. I ended up carrying my mother in my arms like a, like a child up the stairs. It was a sort of literal and figurative moment of strength for me. You know, my mother who once carried me, I am now carrying and caring for. Brendan truly realized he had reached a turning point when he opened the fridge and saw his mom's liquid morphine. At the time I was alone, I, I held it there for a bit. But he put it back. I decided in that moment, never again, not doing it anymore. You've caused enough hurt. It's time to step up and give this family, you know, a reason to, to hang on. Brendan hasn't used drugs in the almost decade since. The support of his family and a strong 12-step fellowship, he says, were key to his recovery. Some addiction clinicians are encouraging providers to lean on so-called social supports like families. I want to move us away from a historical and incorrect assumption that family members are the root cause of addiction or that they are responsible for perpetuating the disorder. That's Alicia Ventura with Boston Medical Center in a virtual training for addiction professionals. She's trained thousands of providers, encouraging them to work with loved ones and avoid using labels like codependent. Ventura says with the deadly opioid fentanyl permeating the drug supply, treatment needs to evolve. We need to start trying new things. And part of that really is going to be improving their interactions with their families and taking advantage of these people who innately love them and want to care for them. Some addiction experts worry, though, that loved ones already shoulder a lot and their health is at risk. And they say many people don't stop using substances unless they face consequences. Ken Feldstein says it shouldn't be one approach versus another, and each family needs to do what works best for them. You've got to be able to do the thing that you do best as a parent and... That is love your children. Now, whatever form that takes, I don't think that's enabling. I think that's doing what comes naturally to us as parents. 
Because, he says, there's no one way to achieve recovery, and for most people, even his son Brendan, it's a complex, individual, mysterious journey. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Deborah Becker. Coming up at the top of the hour on WBUR, it's the BBC News Hour. They'll have more on the election of a right-wing populist as president of Argentina, plus the reaction from France on the new Ridley Scott film about Napoleon. It's 8.50. WBUR supporters include the law firm of Nutter, McLennan and Fish, counsel to leading companies and institutions for more than a century. Client-focused, collaborative, this is Nutter. Online at Nutter.com. The horror franchise Saw has been scaring people for almost 20 years. Now, fans have put together an unauthorized addition to the Saw universe, a queer romantic musical. More on All Things Considered from NPR News. On WBUR. Since I've set up the Legacy Gift, I feel like a real member of WBUR's family in a big way. And that makes me feel really good. Build a strong future for WBUR. Learn how at WBUR.org legacy. Here's a look at some of the stories we're following this Monday morning. National and local officials are remembering the legacy of former First Lady Rosalind Carter, who died yesterday at the age of 96 at her home in Georgia. A federal appeals court will consider reinstating a gag order against former President Donald Trump today in a case charging him with plotting to overturn the 2020 election. And a freeway in Los Angeles that's been closed for over a week because of an arson fire is back open this morning. Stay up to date on the news all day here on 90.9 WBUR and on the WBUR app. WBUR supporters include Weston Nurseries. Tis the season to visit holiday trees, greens, ornaments, and home decor. Hingham, Hopkinton, and Chelmsford or online at westonnurseries.com. Temperatures will only rise to around 40 today, but it'll be sunny tonight, partly cloudy in mid-20s. It's 34 degrees in Boston. The person at the top of the most prominent of artificial intelligence companies gets the boot, fights back, and lands very much on his feet, all in the space of a long weekend. Marketplace Morning Report is supported by Palo Alto Networks. Palo Alto Networks delivers what's next in cybersecurity innovation to protect today's digital way of life. Learn more at paloaltonetworks.com. I'm David Brancaccio in New York. The pioneer at the top of the chat GPT company, OpenAI, got fired by his board on Friday, reportedly almost got his job back at the company by Saturday and by last night, landed a sweet position at OpenAI's biggest business partner, Microsoft. The man who you don't just fire is Sam Altman. Marketplace's Nova Safa has been tracking developments. Yeah, David, and what we don't know this morning is exactly what precipitated all of this chain of events. OpenAI says its board fired Sam Altman because, in their words, he was not consistently candid. They haven't elaborated on what that means. OpenAI has an unusual structure. It's a nonprofit with a for-profit arm, which is where the partnership with Microsoft is. So the sudden announcement of Altman's firing came on Friday from the nonprofit board. Then yesterday, Altman was back at OpenAI's headquarters in San Francisco, apparently negotiating his potential return. And then late last night, the final word from Microsoft CEO Satya Nadella, announcing that he'd hired Altman to lead a new AI research team at Microsoft. Fortune magazine is reporting that Altman was doing a lot of travel to fundraise for an AI microchip venture, suggesting that might have placed him crosswise with the open AI board, but Altman's not confirming this. 
No, and we don't really know a lot right now. What we know for certain is that this is really still playing out. We're seeing a number of OpenAI employees posting in protest on X, formerly Twitter. There are reports that some staff members have already quit. We know Altman will be joined at Microsoft by his OpenAI co-founder, Greg Brockman. And Brockman put out a list of several others who are apparently leaving OpenAI and heading to Microsoft. So keep in mind, Microsoft is also OpenAI's biggest partner. Right now, Nadella says that partnership will continue, but it's clear that this is still a developing story, David. All right, Marketplace Nova Safo. Many will spend another day this Friday manipulating pixels into virtual shopping carts, or they'll go into windowless stores and do the same IRL. Now, there is another way to use Friday, the great outdoors. And according to new data from the Bureau of Economic Analysis, outdoor recreation still means consumer spending. It contributed a trillion dollars to economic output last year. Wyoming, Montana, Alaska, Florida, Vermont, New Hampshire, and Maine see a lot of this in their GDPs. Pandemic recovery has given this sector a boost. Marketplace's Savannah Marr reports. Early in 2020, when people were feeling restless at home but also didn't want to risk getting sick, the city of Lander, Wyoming, saw an opportunity. If you want to come to where there's nobody, come here. And a lot of people came. Owen Sweeney, with Lander's Chamber of Commerce, says the Wind River Mountains have always been a big economic driver. But COVID brought new hikers, bikers, and climbers who've kept coming back. Jessica Turner with the Outdoor Recreation Roundtable has seen that trend around the country. The BEA found that the sector now makes up 2.2% of the national GDP. Well, and you can see we're bigger than agriculture and utilities and, you know, mining and extractive industries. You realize this is a real force for the economy. But these economies rely on public lands maintained by federal workers. So with Congress struggling to pass a budget. It's a yo-yo roller coaster kind of existence. Owen Sweeney says the possibility of a shutdown after the holidays has mountain towns like his on edge. I'm Savannah Marr for Marketplace. The current federal budget deal gets us through January. Stock index futures are little changed right now, while retail gas prices are down 9% since Thanksgiving week a year ago. Crude oil is up 2% this morning, 77.50 a barrel. Marketplace Morning Report is supported by Charles Schwab. Schwab believes every investor deserves to work with a firm they can count on, with financial consultants ready to serve clients and 24-7 live help. An update now on child care centers now that COVID-era federal subsidies come to an end or came to an end this fall. A consumer products company facing less revenue could just raise prices so the consumer would pay. But since many struggling parents simply cannot afford to pay more for child care, this leads to what economists call a failed market. Marketplace's Stephanie Hughes has been tracking this. To send your preschooler to downtown Baltimore child care, it'll cost you just over $1,700 a month. It's nearly $2,300 for infants. Executive Director Hillary Roberts-King understands that's a lot. This amount is astronomical. I know that. Roberts-King says about 80% of that goes towards wages for staff. And with federal pandemic relief funds gone, the center is considering raising its rates next year by between 2 and 5%. And part of that is looking at our competitors and then talking about what the market will bear. One person who's part of that market is Jacqueline Lazola. She has two daughters here and has come to the center for a parent-teacher conference. She's keeping her voice down because it's nap time. I try to avoid when my daughters are awake because if they're awake, it's like, mommy, mommy, mommy. <laughs> so, 
Lizola is an MD-PhD student, and her husband's a medical resident. And even with a discount, close to half of their income goes to childcare. So if tuition does increase with the next academic year, we absolutely cannot afford it anymore, unfortunately. As it stands, we are kind of teetering on being unable to pay regularly. After Lizola graduates next month, she'd love to pick up shifts at the hospital and do some research before she starts her obstetrics residency. But to save money on childcare, she might end up staying at home with her kids. It will be great to spend time with the girls. I think what's frustrating about it is that it's not as if it was fully by choice. Nothing about the way the system works is made to support a two-parent household that's working. Single parents are frustrated too. Yusra Scott lives alone with her two-year-old daughter, who also goes to downtown Baltimore childcare. She recently started working four days a week as a hairstylist. I unfortunately can't work Saturday because I don't have anybody to watch her. Scott gets an income-related discount on her childcare bill, which brings it to $500 a month. She says that's all she can manage. And if childcare were to get more expensive, she'd have to ask her family for help. I wouldn't like that. <laughs> you know, it may be something that I, they would be like, well, I, we can't. But not having childcare would mean not working. And Scott says that's a non-starter. Oh, no. Mm-mm. I mean, what would I do? <laughs> like, I would be evicted. You know, no, that would not be enough. Scott hopes she's making more money by next fall so she can cover any price increase. Otherwise, she says she'll just have to figure something out. In Baltimore, I'm Stephanie Hughes for Marketplace. Thanks, Steph. In New York, I'm David Brancaccio, Marketplace Morning Report from APM, American Public Media. I'm Chief Content Officer Victor Hernandez. This is 90.9 WBUR-FM Boston, 92.7 WBUA-Tisbury, and 89.1 WBUH-Brewster. Listen anytime with our app or at WBUR.org. WBUR, Boston's NPR news station.